This New America NYC event took place on May 9, 2017, and is titled The War Show. This event is part of a social cinema screening series at Tumblr and features Justine Megan, Allah Hassan, Sarah Mehta, Sana Mustafa, and Gisu Nia. photography work in 2006, then extended that out to filmmaking. Ala left Syria after the war and moved to New York in 2013, where he is currently based. He recently produced the award-winning Danish-Syrian co-production feature documentary, The War Show, which you just saw. The film premiered at the Venice Film Festival and won the Venice Days Award. His photography book, Cardboard Castle, looks at political advertisement and the urban development of Damascus, and will be released later this year with support from the British Council and the Prince Klaus Fund. He's currently working on a documentary film in collaboration with Oscar-winning director Megan Mylan. We also have with us today Sana Mustafa. She is right there. Yes. Um, she is a community development professional with a specific focus on refugees, youth, women's empowerment, and social development. She is a Syrian refugee since 2013 after fleeing the war in Syria and is currently living in the US. Sana has a range of experience working with national and international nonprofit organizations and causes, namely dealing with peace building efforts, refugee integration, education, and youth engagement. She has been active in advocating for refugee resettlement and the social political engagement of refugees in the US. She's an active public speaker and she's spoken at many places, including the UNHQ in New York, the National Press Club in DC, Harvard Divinity School, Stanford, and lots of university campuses. She speaks about her personal story fleeing war, detention, and on community advocacy efforts. She also speaks about political solutions to humanitarian advocacy efforts. We're very lucky to have her and, and can't wait to, to ask questions and really get into the meat of this. And then right to the right of me is um, Sarah Mehta. She's a human rights researcher with the ACLU's Human Rights Program. She previously worked as the detention fellow with the ACLU's Immigrants' Rights Project and as a staff attorney at the ACLU of Michigan. From 2009 to 2011, Sarah was the Arya Nair Fellow at um, Human Rights Watch and the ACLU's Human Rights Program, focusing on the rights of people with mental disabilities in the US immigration system. While she was a law student, she was a student director of the Prisoner Rights Clinic and worked on capital and criminal defense cases with the New Haven Public Defender's Office, as well as working in the Lowenstein International Human Rights Clinic. She's a graduate of Brown University and Yale Law School, and most pertinent to this conversation, she's also one of the lawyers on what is informally known as the Muslim ban um, case, and she has just returned from hearings on that, so we look forward to an update on that, and also just a discussion around how refugees are, are being treated here legally in the US. 
As for myself, I'm a human rights lawyer and I'm a strategy director at Purpose for about, which is a, an agency, but it, it's not a, a typical agency in that we only take on social cause issues. So for about a year now, I've been working with UNICEF Global on mobilizing the public in Europe and North America in support of refugee rights. And UNICEF really sees the refugee crisis as a children's crisis. And um, I couldn't help but notice all the children in the film. Um, and so if there's time, I'll touch a little bit on that and what we can do um, to help. So without any further ado, um, Ala, I think I'm going to pose the first question to you, a bit of a broad one. But you know, what was the experience like making this film and, and being part of this production that I think took four, more than four years? Thanks for having me here, and uh, thanks POV for showing this film to the American audience. Well, um, this is a collaboration. So we had the Syrians who did most of the shooting on the ground, and uh, at the same time, there's the, the Danish production that is supporting from the get-go and, um, and pushing for, uh, you know, for a documentary to be done. Uh, of uh, maybe 500 hours of footage of, uh, you know, as you saw, the early stages are more home videos and, uh, you know, friends hanging out and, and the world is changing around them. And then it became more focused and it's more political with time. And the growth of this project came because of uh, the growth of the people that were working on it. Um, so the collaboration was, I think, in my opinion, was the hardest part because, uh, and the most interesting part because it was, uh, uh, it, you know, it involved all sorts of discussion between a, a storyteller that is a local to a more global storyteller that is trying to tell a story that is accessible for everyone and at the same time that Syrians can relate to. So yeah, I think the bridging between the two um, sides of this perspective is, uh, is my favorite part of doing this film. Yeah. Um, and just to follow up on that, um, I mean, you note the progression as to how this evolved. And we see very clearly that the conflict escalates as the film goes on. So just like in a bit of a, a technical sort of perspective and some insight into that, I mean, you know, how did people continue to keep on going, often at great risk? You know, what factored into that decision? Um, if you could speak to that a bit. Filming, you mean? Yeah. Uh, well, it, um, for the most part, it was uh, the, the fact that the filming kind of came as a result of the events taking place, rather than that they would go somewhere to film. It was more uh, uh, activists who are going to either you know, spread the pamphlets or uh, uh, to create discussions, public discussions. and. There happened to be a crew with them. So uh, and it, it does get harder and harder. The bigger the guns get, the harder it gets to film them. Uh, and the more complicated and uh, divided the opposition became, the harder it became for journalists, especially foreign ones, to come in and do something uh, of value in Syria. Working on a Syrian case right now means that you have to choose a narrative or build your own narrative. And the um, former is the easier one. And so most people go for it. Um, so it was much harder to be provocative and try to tell the truth, because generally people with big guns in any part of the country did not like that. 
Um, and just one more follow-up on that. Uh, you know, this is the second time that I'm seeing this film. The first time I saw it, I remember it was at a friend's house, and Ala, you were there um, as well. And it's just as impactful the second time, and I'm sure the third and the fourth time. Thank you. Um, and you know, that was many months ago when, I, when, we, when we saw that. And so I'm wondering what your, your hope is for the film. I know that it has gotten a lot of critical acclaim, but what is your hope, what is your hope for this film? Good question. Um, I, I really want as many people to see this film. Um, first and foremost, uh, there's, uh, there are, the, there are the, the detainees. I want people to know as much as possible about the fact that there are hundreds of thousands of people in Syria that are detained and that we don't know anything about in most cases. I have family who I don't know where they are. You have family that you don't know where they are, probably could add to that much more than I can. But I think there needs to be, uh, we need to mobilize everywhere and, and be able to put pressure on the Syrian government at least to release as many people as possible or to tell us where, where, where they are. And so um, I'm hoping that this film can bring the message to as many people as possible. And um, <clears throat> Sana, I know that probably a, a lot of this film um, feels deeply personal. And um, for those of us in the crowd who you know, don't know um, your story and um, the things that you might identify with in this film, I was wondering if you could tell us a bit about that and, and what this film means to you when you, when you watch it. Sure. Um, first, thanks for New America for inviting me. And I'm really honored to be with you. And I'm really happy that we have two Syrians on a panel because it's rare these days. So I'm glad for Allah for being here. And we actually come from the same small town in Syria. So uh, that's a privilege. Very small. <laughs> Very small. So it's random for us to be here, actually, in the same place in New York. Um, so as, um, as you have mentioned, so I definitely associated a lot with the documentary, um, almost all of it. Uh, especially, I, I was first happy to see something that documented the early days of the Syrian revolution. What's now known, what's now now as a civil war, um, you know, we can argue on the terminology, but it is um, it is a conflict that that had uh, that at some point was very peaceful, was nonviolent, and I feel um, as a Syrian in, New York, in in the U.S., I feel this. Um, this understanding about the Syria war is gone, that people only understand that it's an armed conflict, extremism, ISIS. If you ask people about Syria, they would say ISIS, extremism, war, or a civil war. Uh, whereas it actually had a lot of people who, as you saw, um, did a lot of nonviolent non uh, activism. And this is a very, that's shaped us that shaped Allah, that shaped so many of us. And as a young person was in Damascus going to university when the revolution started, I took, I participated alongside my sister, my, my dad, and other family and friends members in actually organizing these demonstrations and being part, and being part of this change. So one of the things that we, we would say, and I am personally very grateful that I witnessed that and I took part of that. Um, and I don't like to be treated as a victim because I actually, I alongside my family, and I, I think I would speak to so many Syrians, we knew that there's a price and we know, we still do. And uh, apparently we paid the price and we still do. Uh, but that doesn't make us any, um, 
you know, I think they really wanted us to say we wish we didn't start this. And I don't, I don't think any of us would say this. And um, uh, personally, I mean, I was detained alongside my sister in 2011 in September from our home in Damascus. And to put things into perspective, when we talk about detention in Syria, we're not talking about detention in the US. It's not legal. Basically, it's your own government kidnaps you. And um, the way we were taken and alongside other Syrian detainees, um, it's, it's literally what you see in Hollywood and action movies. You know, we were like blindfolded, handcuffed, uh, kidnapped 1 a.m. as two girls from our home in Damascus alone. Uh, and, uh, you know, we had a very interesting experience there. And um, I think what they don't understand, the Assad regime, is that after detention, you're actually more determined against the regime. You, we have been fighting this for the past, I have heard about it from my dad. I have heard stories from my dad's friends about their detentions in the 80s and 90s. And just learning about that and living in Syria was enough reason to uprise and revolt in 2011. However, after detention and actually, actually living that personally, I think we were fearless. You know, the only thing we would fear is your life or detention, it happened. What more, like what else you would fear for? Uh, so after being released, we continued our activism, and we were very much encouraged uh, by our dad. And he is—he's always been a role model for us. And that's even before the revolution. My dad had been very active in Syria um, against the Assad regime, and that goes until July 2nd, 2013. So 1,407 days when my dad got detained for the third time by the Assad regime. However, this time was the last time. So my dad has been missing for 1,407 days. So as can you see, I mean, I associated with a lot of this. And basically, we don't know if he's alive of his, or is he dead. Um, his 55th birthday was just this past Friday. And I did not know alongside my mom and my other two sisters whether to celebrate or to grieve. And um, it's really... Um, sad or unfortunate to say that, but um, we were discussing this, Salah and I, when she could identify her, her fiance, her lover, from the Caesar photographs. We were saying she's lucky, because she knows that he's dead at least now. But for us, for, uh, we don't know. There is no conclusion. There will be no conclusion, because they could tell us he's dead and he could be not dead, because they never actually give you the body. And they could tell us he's alive and he could be dead. So, um, I think the uncertainty of the situation is what kills us daily. And I, what I like the most about also this documentary that it brings up the detainees issue, which we don't tend to talk about a lot. And as you saw, like, it is a very serious issue. It, it, is, it is the lives of so many. Um, I'm really glad that the international community attention has been brought up to the refugee crisis in the, in the past two years. But, by the way, the crisis is not a surprise. It has been there since 2011. And uh, it's very important to actually, from this documentary, to see that these refugees have become refugees from a reason. I think this is we tend to talk about refugees without saying we want to be apolitical. You can't discuss you know, the outcome without discussing the root causes. And we've become refugees. I was an activist, I was a Syrian, and I'm still a Syrian, but I was an activist and, become a, and became a refugee because of the, the, this exact oppressive regime. And the same for Allah and so many of those people who just watch their lives, not stories, their lives, they are, are not, uh, called refugees. And we've become ones because of, because of this regime. 
So it's very important to actually not separate the political from the humanitarian crises. Thank you for that. Um, I think that's such a powerful point. I ran an NGO on Iran human rights for years, and a lot of the folks that had to leave Iran were because they were activists and journalists and somehow viewed as dissidents. And a lot of times, countries would sort of cherry pick which ones they wanted to accept and which ones they didn't based on what their role was inside of the country. So, so thank you for that. Sarah, you're with the ACLU, and the ACLU has been leading the charge with many others on standing against the executive orders 1.0 and 2.0 that have been issued in this country, um, which seek to ban Syrian refugees um, indefinitely, I think, in the first iteration. And then um, there was a bit of talk on, on, on the second. But um, I know you just came from the Fourth Circuit of Appeals, court of, Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals, to, to, to uh, um, basically um, you know, argue this case. So can you give all of us an update on how that went and how things are going and, and where we see this, what we see the outcome as being? Sure, thank you. And um, I'll start out by acknowledging that listening to the lawyer talk is always the least compelling part of a panel, um, particularly on one like this where you guys have just done such incredible personal and political activism with the, the work that you're doing. I'm, I'm just completely humbled. Um, I should also add another disclaimer that I didn't end up going to Richmond yesterday. I got back very, very late from um, from a vacation that had been canceled a few times because of this case. Um, so I was in New York yesterday listening with a lot of people on, on the live stream, um, which itself is a unique experience. Um, despite the, the openness of our democracy in the United States, it's actually very difficult to hear court arguments for the most part. It's pretty rare to have one live streamed. Um, so as I'm sure all of you know, there have been now two different executive orders um, which are basically functionally the exact same order. Um, both were signed on January 27th, uh, along with a slew of other immigration-related executive orders by President Trump. And this particular one sought not just to restrict immigration for any type of individual coming from seven identified countries, but to indefinitely suspend both Syrian refugees from coming to the United States, but also put a halt on the larger refugee program, which while most refugees coming to the United States are coming from Muslim-majority countries. Um, the United States has already started another very important refugee program in Central America in part in response to the large number of Central Americans that had been fleeing unbelievably horrific violence in Honduras and El Salvador and in Guatemala over the past few years and were coming as asylum seekers to the U.S. border. Um, the U.S. government under Obama had started a program for in-country processing and this has now also been suspended. So a lot of people were affected by this. The second order um, came in response to litigation, and, and the Trump administration's been very open about that too. Uh, after the Ninth Circuit had put a hold on the executive order, um, the Trump administration went back and rewrote basically the same order, taking Iraq off the list and refusing to, or stopping to single out Syrian refugees, but still halting the resettlement of refugees in the United States. What you heard if you listened to the argument yesterday, and what I think anybody who's been paying attention to the news knows, is that this argument really turns on one central issue, which is that this is very clearly a ban targeted at Muslims. Uh, and we know that because President Trump said that repeatedly throughout his campaign. Uh, he said it on his campaign website, which was maintained up until the argument started yesterday afternoon. Um, his own super uh, administration has also publicly said in between the two orders that the whole point of this 
this was to prevent Muslims from coming to the United States. Um, and repeatedly throughout his campaign, he confused or rather fused the two groups of refugees and terrorists. So I, I think what you said, Sana, is, is really compelling that over the past couple of years, there has been more of a recognition that these are political refugees, mainly in Europe, where there was much more of a conversation about that at first. But in the United States, that quickly turned into a conversation about, aren't these actually just terrorists, even though we acknowledge that these are, pe are people who are fleeing the very violence and terrorism that we acknowledge is happening. Instead of treating these individuals as people who have a, a right to, free that, to flee that and as, as victims of this horrendous violence, treating them as suspects instead with, with no appreciation for the horrific violence that was depicted in this film earlier. Um, so anyway, what happened yesterday was really turning on this issue as to whether or not we are going to acknowledge that this is a Muslim ban or not, even though all of the evidence um, says that it is. And in fact, one of the judges on the Fourth Circuit said it would take willful blindness to pretend that this is not a ban on Muslims. So we're fairly confident at this point that there will be an acknowledgment that this Muslim ban violates the US Constitution, particularly the Establishment Clause. The argument yesterday, I should just say really quickly, was limited to the visa part of, of the case. Our judge has not yet ruled on the refugee part. The Ninth Circuit judge did. Um, he, he stopped the executive order both on the visa issuance part and the ban on refugee resettlement. In effect, what our clients, two of the largest refugee resettlement organizations in the country, have told us is that really, what happened with the executive order has completely messed up the refugee resettlement process. So even though now it has been restarted, it created such incredible chaos um, that getting refugees over and restarting that process, even without the ban, has been incredibly difficult. The arguments on the Ninth Circuit will be next week, and then we're going to see what, what happens with the ban. Thank you for that. I'm in this interesting role of moderator slash panelist, so I'm going to keep it short because I really want to open it up to questions from the audience, but I think just the only thing I really have to say is after watching the film for the second time and seeing all the faces of the children and the children handling weapons and the children being in different situations that are no doubt going to lead to trauma, I just think of what UNICEF estimates to be the 50 million children that are uprooted in this world, whether that's due to conflict, persecution, um, natural disaster, but you know, they might be displaced inside Syria and other countries of conflict. But you know, we also have a responsibility here and in Europe, in Europe out of the 1.3 million folks that claimed asylum in 2015, I think nearly 100,000 were unaccompanied children. So that's like people under the age of 18 who don't even have a parent or a guardian with them. And that's, those are really powerful stats. And it looks, not, it looks like for 2016, we're on track to have those same numbers. And I anticipate 2017 won't be any different, sadly. So very excited to be in this space with people who care about this issue, are eager to mobilize around these things and, and make that change. Um, with that, I'm going to open up to questions. I think we'll probably pass the mic around, because I think we're taping for a podcast. So I'll just start. Do you want to? OK. Hi. Um, thank you for showing this film. I, I can't begin to understand the, the level of personal bravery and risk that everyone involved in making this film made a decision to put themselves into. I happened to uh, be a trained national security and, and Middle East analyst. I'd worked on uh, mainly on the Arab-Israeli conflict and developing the two-state proposal. And as, a, as an individual, I'm pretty confident, have strong opinions. Syria is a, is a situation that has totally bedeviled me. I have friends from Syria. 
and uh, you spoke of, and, and you were speaking about how you, it began as peaceful demonstrations, but it, you know it's peaceful demonstrations against a barbarous regime that has no compunctions whatsoever about using all types of violence against its own people, and then arms came in and it's devolved into some type of civil war. Uh, in which the Free Syrian Army that was portrayed in the documentary is probably the weakest force now, and mainly you have the, the Assad army against uh, an Isla uh, ISIS or uh, Islamist extremist armies, and very little moderates. And, and so, can you say anything? And I don't know if there is anything to say about a level. What can be done? in this environment, given the realities and, and, and the armed forces there, to resolve this issue? Because this is one issue I have no clue. Um, I, I don't know, actually. <laughs> but to be serious, though, I mean, it's not, uh, this is not just uh, Syrians fighting each other anymore. Not, not for a while now. And um, you know, there are all sorts of armies there. Well, there are, you know. Yeah, sure, there are the Iranians, there are the Russians, the Turks, the Americans, the uh, Iraqis, the, you know, you name it, it's probably there. And um, the, the thing is that these are not just random forces, you know? These are states that can make decisions and can be pressured politically to make different decisions. And so there needs to be political will to have a peaceful solution in Syria. And as the Syrian people made it very clear over and over again, that the main cause, the catalyst for this conflict was the fact that the uh, government retaliated violently against peaceful opposition. Even if that's arguable, but it's, uh, there's a, a systemic collective punishment, you know. Absolutely. And so, um, yes, it's, it's pretty confusing. It's very complicated. That's true, but not for uh, everybody. I, I think it's uh, people that actually have power and have influence there that know more and can make better decisions. And I don't think they are held accountable because we all just give up very quickly and believe that, oh, this is beyond us. And I don't believe that's true. I think that the more we learn about it, and you know, Syrians feel the same way, actually. It's not like a, if you're Syrian, you would know more. <laughs> you'd know more information, probably don't have more solutions. So yeah, I think there needs to be a political process. Uh, or a very important condition of that to, to be successful is to change the, the Syrian regime, to change how the government works and how the people are treated. Because that's the main catalyst. And as long as it's still there, there will always be you know, ping pong, back and forth. If I may just real quickly on that. If you believe in people power, I mean, one major gap that we identified at Purpose and that we were working with UNICEF on was in Russia and Iran. I'm Iranian. And um, there has been a, an almost complete apathy from the activist class there around this. Only recently has there really been a strong call to their government to stop supporting this. And that's surprising. And same thing for Russia. We were really shocked by the sort of gap in in that area, whereas they had stood up um, against Putin on any number of things, but there was a real gap on that. And we don't have the answer for why that is. I mean, there's a range of factors why, but if you believe in people power, there's definitely something missing on the pieces on some of the countries that are very entrenched in this conflict. So one solution could be to start there. Given my, nat okay, I'll, I'll be very quick. Just giving my nat natural security pa uh, background, people power is wonderful, 
but when, one, when people power goes up against regimes, be it in Iran, be it in Russia, certainly against Bashar al-Assad, those regimes just kill the people. I have a much simpler question. It's a question about the future, not of Syria, but the Syrians. Half of the population has been displaced. Millions have left the country, and they've protracted warfare where those areas not controlled by the government, not yet controlled, are systematically destroyed. So what's going to happen? Is it realistic to assume Syrians are going to go back to their country? And who's going to pay for the reconstruction? I feel like uh, my own, just my own opinion from historical conflicts. Uh, I mean, you can see the reconciliation process and the reconstruction and rebuilding process. First, it takes time. And I mean, historically, international actors come to take a big role in this, uh, sometimes for good, sometimes for bad. So definitely, um, there is the possibility of a lot of international actors you know, making more investment in Syria in the future. and. But this might undermine the Syrian like sovereignty itself, uh, and it might not. I mean, I can't give you like an answer. I don't think there's an answer. But I would say, um, I was yesterday. I was reading an article that you know it's about a million dollar, uh, billion billion dollar um, the reconciliation, uh, reconstruction in Syria, just in Syria, just like building wise, infrastructure wise. Um, so not to talk about people, and I think important aspect that people tend to forget about when we talk about this fleeing and what's happening in Syria is the demographic changes. So we can see in the conflict now that the Assad regime systematically are besieging people in specific areas and then transforming these people to another areas. Um, and so when people actually are being transformed, you know, it, it's not like a temporary thing. It's a gonna be permanent thing. And that means, you know, all, all your, um, the assets you have, or even all the refugees who fled. For example, when, when we had to flee and my dad got detained, you know, the Iranians, <laughs> who actually now kind of, him, like, um, you know, controlling all of Syria, came to us and they wanted to buy our land. Hmm. Of course. I mean, now in Aleppo and other places, there is no even, like, asking, you know, when people are fleeing, first, probably they are selling everything for cheap to get money to, be, to pay the smugglers to flee to Europe. And who's buying? Guess who? The Iranians and Hezbollah fighters. There is like there is a systematic plan to launch the Shiite, I would say, hegemony in Syria through the Iranians and Hezbollah. And the same, you know, uh, for those who actually, I don't want to make like talk about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, but they have, bec they have become like settlers. They have took over our, the, the land without any uh, authority, without any question. And this is, has like, huge demographic changes. So if we were to return one day, uh, who has right to their lands anymore? I think there are very big questions to ask about Syria also. Yeah, the Lebanese never came back. Yeah. The Palestinians never came back. And it seems like we're walking the same steps. And yeah. Is there an aspect of ethnic cleansing? Yeah, from many sides actually. The like it's uh, it's it's uh, sometimes it's ethnic, sometimes it's more class based. Sometimes the poor areas are being pushed out, and then um, bigger investors supposedly will be rebuilding the country. Uh, there are many conferences about reconstruction of the country. There's a lot of money being pumped into that future process. So because it's usually very profitable, so I wouldn't worry about where the money is going to come from for reconstruction. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it's there. Hi, um, my name is Kiran. I'm a journalist. 
And uh, when the film started, I started, um, uh, I, I I've been covering Syria for a while, uh, not very long, just, just a year, through WhatsApp. Um, you know, like getting, getting, um, getting views of Syrians and, you know, trying to understand what they feel at this moment. So uh, when the film started, I was messaging one of uh, my sources. He's a doctor in Idlib, and he sends his regards and says thank you. He also has a question, and the question is, these films and documentaries and uh, articles that are written about Syria right now, uh, sort of are a glimpse and documentation of what has been happening from the beginning to now. Um, he asks, like, how do you think it affects policy at, at the level where, you know, like, I think you were suggesting, I, I, I didn't get your name, but um, that, that, you know, that when people go against um, a dictator, they are bombed. Right, and that happens. But I think a lot of Syrians do believe that that is where the, the role of international community comes in. Um, the international community is involved in Syria uh, when it comes to war and bombing. And you know, Syria is not just a conflict uh, now as, as of 2016 and 17. It's not just a conflict that began as a revolution. It's become um, you know, like a, a ground of proxy wars and Syrian civilians who are still there kind of are stuck there. So they basically do rely a lot on the international community, on the UN General Council, on, on, on the US, and what the, how the policies shape, take shape. So, so coming back to Shadi's question, his name is Shadi Al-Hajj, he's a doctor in Idlib, and uh, he asked, like, how do you see these documentation of uh, what happened with the Syrian people affecting policy? And do you think that it would, it would help in any way? Um, I'm going to quote Gesu here. Uh, do you believe in the power of the people? Yes, we grew up in a dictatorship, but not everybody does, right? And so uh, outreach and getting, I think public opinion does matter. It does matter here. Even if we can get cynical about it, Syrians, uh, it's very easy for us to get very cynical about the world right now. And it makes sense. It makes sense. It's very understandable. And it actually, um, it's, a, it's a defensive mechanism, right? Like, then we don't have to deal with it because it's very complicated and it's very overwhelming. Uh, it's torturous. But at the same time, it's very important to, to continue to speak up. So if one or two or 10 people ever, at a time know more about it, then that's what we can do. Especially for Syrians who are still in Syria, this doesn't make any sense, you know? So, uh, you know, it's always that. If, if we don't do this, if we don't make documentaries, if we don't take pictures, write, do all of these things, then what? What's going to change then, really? Nothing. Um, well, for sure, but at least we try. And that's what we can do. I would add one thing that, um, I mean, you know, we're Syrians and, like, you know, we've been in the revolution and now we're refugees. But still, I'm very careful with making statements on behalf of the Syrian people because I don't live there anymore. And actually, those who live there, they have the, the right to decide the future of Syria more than us who will live in exile because, you know, we are like in our safe New York City area, right? So for him, as someone who's living in Idlib, where it's taking a lot of, it's, the conflict is very present, he can't, which is of course understandable, understandable he can't really think of tomorrow. They have to survive day by day. For us, people who actually now fled and we live in a safe heaven, regardless debating the US as being a safe heaven these days, but 
People like us have to do this, you know why? For two reasons. First, for educational reasons. It's important that you know really what's happening from us because there's a lot of fake news these days. The second reason is hopefully when the conflict has an end one day, it's very important to have these documentations for accountability. We want to take war, war, uh, you know, warlords and war uh, murders accountable for their, um, for their crimes. And this includes all uh, actors participating in the conflict in Syria. Can I just add from, from the American advocacy perspective, I mean, all of the advocates who've been bringing these cases we're winning because people are showing up and are outraged. And they're outraged because they have a better understanding of what is happening in Syria and who these refugees are and what your lives are and that they're just like us because you guys are doing this work and telling those stories. There is no doubt in my mind that we would not be winning at all in court if there hadn't been this outpouring of support. To see the number of people showing up at airports and at protests, it is, it's like nothing else that has ever happened in the United States. It didn't happen with the Muslim registry under NSEERS in 2001. Uh, we represent a lot of Central American children um, who've come who are unaccompanied minors. People in Arizona and Texas were holding placards saying, like, get out of our country to five-year-olds who had just been raped, you know? I mean, nobody cared about those children who were fleeing unimaginable horrors because nobody understood those stories. And so to have this documentation is just absolutely essential because we need that pressure, not just for the court battle, but to force our policymakers to have a different perspective on refugees. I think we have about 10 minutes left for questions, so we have a little bit of time. It's just a one more. It, it's so easy to, to think of this crisis thousands of miles away in the abstract as an unmitigated disaster, which it is. What hope do you have? Is there a piece of hope that you take from this terrible experience going forward? I have, I have plenty of hope, actually. It's not necessarily realistic, but it's there, and it has to stay there. Uh, I have a family that is still in, Dam in Damascus, in, in Syria, living there. I talk to them on the phone every day, and they lead as close to normal as they can of a life, and they are fine. Um, not compared to our living situations, but they are fine for them. And uh, if I talk to them and I feel a little down or whatever, my sister is like, oh, I feel so bad for you, my brother. You know, like in New York City, you're just having a hard time today. It must have been a horrible day today where your croissant was stale or something like that. So, <laughs> so she's the cheerful one, right? And so I'm... Is it the best Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, she's mocking me, and uh, so, so <laughs> which is, uh, I need that because she's my bigger sister. And so, yeah, of course I do have hope because otherwise, uh, again, you don't really have a choice there. Yeah. You know, some days I feel like I don't want to wake up, I don't want to leave bed, everything is getting worse. Um, and, um, you know, just I feel personally just my dad and then the fact that my mom and my sisters are refugees in Turkey, and they got denied because of the orders to come to the US. And my other sister is a refugee in Germany, so we are refugees in a three different continent, one family. And I am the privileged one to be in the US. People do not realize like this, this how create division within families. I feel so guilty of being here. 
I should not, why would, you know, I should be happy, at least I'm like in a safe heaven, right? But I feel so guilty for being here because I talk daily between, with my mom in, uh, in Turkey and sister, with my sister in Germany, with my family in Masyaf and, and the regime halt controls areas, and I think about my dad and, you know, where I am in all of this. The only thing that brings me hope that I know that we believe in this. I know that if my dad is dead now, so he died for something he believes in. I know that I am a refugee now and we're paying this price because we finally stood up and sp spoke out against the Assad regime. So I feel like I, I kind of owe myself just the recognition that I stood up for myself and for others. So this should keep me you know, thriving, not only surviving. Thank you. With that, we're going to need to wrap it up, but thank you everybody for coming tonight. Thank you to New America and POV, and this conversation has been recorded, and the podcast is going to be linked to on the social cinema um, vertical at the New America site. So if you want to share with any of your friends or colleagues, feel free. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to this New America NYC podcast. This recording carries a Creative Commons, non-commercial, 4.0 international license. To learn more about New America, please visit us at newamerica.org.